morning, welcome again, especially if you're visiting. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, please pull it out. And John chapter 2. Uh, if you have a phone or an iPad, you can do that too. We spent a lot of money to install these iPad racks on the back of the pews for you all. <laughs> there. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume you. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for your kindness and your mercy in gathering us today. Uh, thank you, most of all, for new life in Jesus. Not an abstraction, not a fairy tale, uh, not wishful thinking but real, historical, earthly, physical, resurrection, life, conquest of death. We thank you, Lord, and we ask uh, by the life of Jesus and the power of his spirit that we would now find life in his word. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Today our church is celebrating our first service in our first building after 22 years in schools. But most of all, Today, our church is celebrating the resurrection of Jesus after two days in the grave. We're very excited about this building, but we must admit this morning that Jesus' feet was vastly more impressive than our own. Given everything that's been going on with getting us into this building, I was very behind on choosing a passage for Easter. Uh, but last week, I stumbled upon this passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus makes a link between his resurrection and a building. But not just any building, the building, the Jerusalem temple. This is the one building on earth where at this point God had promised to meet with humanity in a special way. Our building will never have this special status that the Jerusalem temple once did. But even so, even as we now begin this new and exciting chapter as a church family, I want us to better understand the significance of Jesus' resurrection so that we might use and occupy this building for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. Part of the point of this passage is that resurrection and renovation must be joined together lest we end up in the awful situation that Jesus had found in Jerusalem. 
The temple that is there in Jerusalem in Jesus' day is a building that had succeeded the tabernacle, which is a fancy word for tent, this tent that we've been talking about so much in the book of Leviticus over the last couple months. The temple had been destroyed and then rebuilt a couple hundred years before Jesus walks into the temple for the story we read about today. And when he does this, it's actually in the middle of being renovated. Uh, it's going to take another you know, 30 years or so for them to finish doing it. Uh, it was the largest temple in the ancient Roman world. It was widely praised as an architectural marvel, even by non-Jewish people. And yet, in spite of its external and physical majesty, something is deeply wrong with the temple. And so that's the first thing we see in this passage. We see a glorious building in terrible shape. A glorious building in terrible shape. For the most part, Jesus avoids Jerusalem, even though it was the political and the religious heart of Israel. Uh, instead, Jesus spent almost all of his time in the backwoods of Galilee to the north. But he did come down to Jerusalem a few times a year in order to fulfill God's requirement that the Israelites attend there a couple of annual festivals. And so this is why Jesus is there now. He's in Jerusalem for this annual Passover festival. And so, of course, he goes to the temple, which is where they're supposed to go. But there, at the temple, he finds a complete circus. Uh, they're selling animals for pilgrims to sacrifice. There's people exchanging currencies uh, so that the pilgrims that have come there can offer their annual temple gift with the correct money. In and of themselves, those activities are not wrong. People did need to offer certain kinds of animals at the temple. Uh, they could hardly carry them on their own all the way from around the world. Uh, and of course, it made some sense to only accept one good form of money in a world that had people using all kinds of different money. Uh, but there's at least two problems here. First, they're doing all of this business and this trade right in the temple area. They're almost certainly doing it right outside the temple building itself in a large courtyard that was supposed to be for the Gentiles. It was the only place where non-Jewish people could access any part of the temple complex. This is where they have all their booths and their tables set up. And the other gospels telling of this event, or at least an event very much like it, Jesus specifically cites a verse from the prophet Isaiah about how God wanted his temple to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And so with all this noise, all this stuff, all this activity going on, they're actually blocking out all these non-Jewish people from coming to pray and to learn about the one living God. But on top of keeping the Gentiles out of the temple, these people are also morally corrupt. Jesus says in the other gospel accounts that they have taken what God intended to be a house of prayer for all the nations, and they have deformed it into a den of robbers. They're probably ripping off these pilgrims who are there, uh, required to be there by God. They're probably ripping them off uh, with all of their exchanging and selling. They might be doing it through trading and selling faulty products, uh, or maybe just through charging them exorbitant prices to worship God in the way He wants. This building and its worship it had a glorious start back in the happy days of King Solomon when they originally built it. Uh, and then it had a couple of wonderful restarts. Uh, it had a restart under the rebuilding program of the scribe Ezra. You can read about that at the end of the Old Testament. And then again, this is not in the Old Testament, but it's a wonderful story if you're looking for some particularly gory bedtime reading with your kids. Uh, 150 years before Jesus, you had this wonderful story about the Maccabeans rebelling 
against the evil Greek pagan tyrants and taking back the temple and cleansing it and rededicating it to God's service. This is what Hanukkah is celebrating today. So you have this wonderful restart then also. Uh, and then most recently you have King Herod, the King Herod that was around when Jesus was born. He had begun this massive remodeling project, this massive expansion of the building, which like I said is still happening when Jesus is walking around there. The building had a great start, but a terrible end. And so now you have Jesus confronting the moral and the spiritual rock at the heart of it. Because Jesus is a glorious king on a serious mission. He's a glorious king on a serious mission. You have here in John 2.17 a reference to one of the Psalms where David had written that zeal for your house will consume me. After the resurrection, we hear from John that the disciples remember uh, this psalm in light of what's happened, in light of Jesus coming back from the dead. Uh, that Jesus, as King David's messianic heir, has come into God's world with ultimate zeal, ultimate passion for God's house. First thing you see him zealous for is its integrity. Jesus is zealous for its integrity. He hates the hypocrisy and the apathy and the crudity going on there, right on the threshold of the one piece of real estate on the entire planet where God has taken up residence among human beings. And so Jesus makes a whip, and he starts busting chops. He's kicking over tables. It's very different, and we usually think of Jesus as kind of this wimpy kind of guy. But Jesus is here, kicking over tables, he's whacking businessmen, he's scaring their animals, he's driving away, it says he takes their money and he dumps it out on the floor. Sheep are screaming, coins rolling everywhere, people are running for cover. Jesus is really angry. He's really angry, and he's right to be so. Because this is his father's house. He's zealous for its integrity, but he's also zealous for its purpose. We've been saying through our time in Leviticus that God gave Israel the tabernacle, which would later become the temple. God gave it to them and its sacrifices as a gift, a gracious gift, a way for sinful people to approach his life-giving presence and there enjoy his life and spread his life and blessing out into their lives and their communities and into the wider world. That's the whole point of this building. But the Jerusalem temple, by the time of Jesus, in spite of all of its outward glory, is not fulfilling this purpose. The money changers have crowded out the nations from approaching God, and more widely, the Jerusalem establishment has become fixated on ethnic and religious pride. They're sneering at outsiders as inferior and impure, even as many of these same elites were happy to cut deals with their Roman overlords. It was a disgusting and hypocritical clown show. And so Jesus is now confronted by some of these leaders. Verse 18, they say, Hey man, who do you think you are? How dare you come and make a scene here? Don't you know who we are? Don't you know how important we are? Don't you know what this building is? But as he often does, Jesus responds with a cryptic statement. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And what would you think if you saw some guy running around watching people, knocking things over, and he says something weird like that? They think he's a lunatic, they're baffled. 
But of course, John tells us the disciples later on, after the resurrection, figure out what Jesus meant. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus was referring to his resurrection from the dead, a feat vastly more impressive than renovating some building, even a real building. <coughs> Jesus' point here in Jerusalem is not just that he's God's king who's come to restore the integrity and the purpose of the temple. Jesus is saying that, but he's actually saying a lot more than that. Jesus is saying, I am God's mighty king who is the temple. Jesus says, I am the temple. I am where you can and you must and you will find the presence of God on earth. I am what all of this was always pointing to. The Garden of Eden, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, the temple in various forms. Jesus is saying, all of that is about a sweaty, angry man whipping a bunch of people shouting about what his father wants. That's what it's all about. Jesus is the true temple. In Jesus, we find God's life. And it's from Jesus and through Jesus that God's life spreads into the whole world, to all the nations, in all of their deathly misery and chaos. That's what the temple was supposed to be about. And it's what Jesus' resurrection was all about. Jesus did not merely die a tragic death on the cross. He did not merely offer his life to save those he loved. More than that, Jesus rose from the dead. But even more than that, Jesus raised himself from the dead. He said, I will raise up the building myself. Jesus could not stay dead. Because he was and he is the living God himself. The reason that Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross is of any good at all to us is because he's alive. He brings his resurrection life with him into the presence of God on our behalf so that we now too can also enjoy the living presence of God. So in this story, you have a clash between a glorious building and terrible shape coming into conflict with a glorious king on a serious mission. The mission to bring all the nations into God's life-giving presence, which of course arrived in a new and a glorious way with the resurrection of Jesus. And so now in light of the passage, as we move into our own building, allow me to share with you some Easter exhortations. Six of them under two headings, three each. First heading, let's beware of what can go wrong. Let's beware of what can go wrong. Church history, even the city of Austin right now, is filled with churches that had a glorious start, but arrived at a terrible end. I lived in Scotland for four years. 500 years ago, God was doing amazing things in Scotland. There was real, widespread, spiritual and social transformation and renovation going on all over the country. Uh, Scotland was so marked by love for God's word and allegiance to it that they as a people were once simply known as the people of the book. But now, Scotland is on its third or its fourth generation of widespread 
spiritual malaise. There are old, beautiful church buildings everywhere at one time filled with earnest and joyful Christians. But now many of them are being converted into apartments and pubs and offices, and the ones that still function as churches are largely empty. The Church of Scotland itself openly and proudly rejects the clear teaching of the Bible, and those few people who hear anything from its pulpits are mostly hearing political pep talks, pep talks and self-help banalities. We need to beware of what can go wrong. We can't tell ourselves, things are going really well at our church. Things are really exciting. The building is full today. This could never happen here. That attitude is the kiss of death. We need to beware the danger of moral compromise. Beware the danger of making God a means to an end. Telling ourselves we can pick and choose whichever parts of his word we want to follow depending on how we feel or what's convenient, or what will make us powerful or successful. We also need to beware the danger of empty ritual. The Jerusalem temple in Jesus' day had all the rituals going, and they were going really well. They were really good at offering all the sacrifices at precisely the right time and in just the right way. They were really good at wearing all of the fancy clothes. They were really good at saying all of the right prayers. But it was all a show. There was nothing there. You can't get to the point where you're just calling it in, just going through the motions, just showing up. Ritual is not necessarily bad, but what God wants most of all is our hearts. He wants our very center of our being. He wants our love, our joy, our gratitude. We also need to beware the danger of prideful exclusion. Part of why Jesus is so angry that day is because they're crowding out the Gentiles from getting in to approach God. So much of Jesus' ministry revolved around him going to people who are on the outside in order to bring them in to be part of his family. Jesus and the rest of the New Testament are constantly nailing the way that many Jewish people at the time are spitefully looking down on the Gentiles, the way that they thought God must have chosen them because they figured that he needs them. They figured that he thought they were something really special. Uh, but we too must beware of this tendency. Uh, many of us have known Christians like this. Uh, some of us perhaps have been totally turned off by Christianity because of Christians acting like this. But given the many ways that our culture is changing, the ways that it's becoming more and more post-Christian, we might be tempted today to fearfully or spitefully avoid people who don't believe in Jesus people who look like differently than we do, who act differently than we do, people who don't share our ethnicity or our politics or our class. And so getting into our building, as wonderful as it is, cannot mean that we can now just sit back, pull up the drawbridge, and look down on people who aren't here. We need to be praying and seeking that God brings people to himself through us and through this building whoever they might be. And that brings me to my other set of exhortations. We're halfway through six of them. The first set is about bewaring the danger of what can go wrong. Uh, the second set is more encouraging, I promise. <laughs> it's about remembering what we're here for. Remembering what we're here for. First thing that we're here for is to enjoy God's presence in Jesus. 
If you want to find and enjoy God's life-giving presence, you must go to Jesus. That is a very controversial, very narrow, very specific thing to say. And I realize that, but the Bible is very clear about this. Jesus is our life. Jesus is where we find our sustenance and our abundance and our energy, our motivation, our vitality. Some of us here this morning are facing deeply painful suffering. Fear, disappointments, our bodies are failing us, our relationships are fading, our portfolios are staggering, our careers are consuming our souls. But if you're a Christian, Jesus is life. And if you're not a Christian, Jesus can be life. No matter who you are, if you want God's life, go to Jesus, trust in Him, talk to Him, learn about Him, listen to Him. Listen to some of the ways that Jesus explains this for us. Some of the ways that He's saying that we can and will find God's life-giving presence and blessing in Him, our resurrected friend and brother. Jesus says this, I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He goes on and says a little later, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. He's saying that we find the resurrection life of God in him. He shares it with us and by it he makes us fruitful in his service. But enjoying the presence of the living God in Jesus is not just some personal, private experience. It's also the key to our moral integrity and our health as a community in relationship to the wider world. Listen to how the Apostle Paul makes this point in his letters to the Corinthian church. Now, he's speaking at this point about how and why God calls his people to sexual integrity. And the reason that he gives them for that is this. He says, the body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Why does God care so much about what we do with our bodies, a lot of people ask. Paul goes on, he says, because in Christ, we ourselves, body and soul, are now also, quote, a temple of the Holy Spirit with us, whom we have from God. In another letter to the same church, when Paul wants to call them to live as a healthy and gospel-centered community, to not fall into moral compromise with the world around them, he says this, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And so you see the point. Enjoying God's presence in Jesus, God's life in Jesus, is the key not only to a healthy individual spiritual life, but also the key to a corporate, communal, spiritual, and ethical life. And so now that's to my next point. We're here to enjoy God's presence in Jesus, but we're also here to spread God's presence in Jesus. 
After the resurrection, just before ascending into heaven, Jesus assembles his followers. He tells them to go out into the whole world to proclaim and to teach about everything that he's done. And then he ends with this wonderful promise. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is present with us in all of his resurrection life. He's empowering us to carry out his mission of going out to the nations. The temple was a building where the nations could come. But with Jesus as the true temple, now present in us and among us, Jesus says, go. Go to the nations. Our church is starting an exciting new chapter, but our mission is the same as always, to spread God's presence in Jesus. We need to be going out to the people around us. We need to be talking about Jesus with boldness and with joy. We need to prayerfully seek to help people find life and peace amidst all of this world's death and chaos. And so now we get to my last point as we remember what we're here for. We enjoy God's presence in Jesus. We spread God's presence in Jesus. And finally, we will arrive in God's presence in Jesus. We really do get to enjoy God's life in Jesus now, but we don't yet enjoy it fully. Jesus' resurrection is the down payment on our own resurrections to come at the end of history at the final judgment. This building is a physical and temporary outpost for pilgrims on their way to the great and final day when the whole earth will be filled with God's presence forever. And so if we will be fruitful in our ministry here in this building, we must always be living in light of the day when there will no longer be church buildings. Remember where the resurrection of Jesus is taking us. And this is where I'm going to end. This is the second to last chapter in the Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Jesus is the living temple. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to the day when your glory will cover the entire earth. when we will know you and be with you and see you fully. And we want to live in light of that. We are so grateful for the resurrection of Jesus, this first invasion of new creation into this dying old creation. We rejoice that the invasion has already begun and that the victory is assured. Help us now as we start our life in this building to live as resurrection people, people who are enjoying your presence in your Son, Jesus. And help us to bring that life to the world around us, we pray. In Jesus' living name.